The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Warm welcome. This is Sportbox. Senior headlines. Modest gains for markets ahead of this week's Fed decision as former ECB President Jean-Claude Trichet tells CNBC the world's biggest central banks can't do all the heavy lifting. The ECB cannot be, and the Fed cannot be, the only game in town. We are in a situation where we would certainly need a, a fantastic help and mobilization and, uh, and aggressivity in coping with the problems. The U.S. is set to send a thousand more troops to the Middle East amid rising tensions with Iran. Uh, elsewhere, the Chinese President Xi Jinping will make his first state visit to North Korea ahead of a possible meeting with Donald Trump at the G20 summit. And Boeing logs zero net new orders on day one of the Paris Air Show amid safety concerns over the 737 MAX and questions over when the plane will fly again. Has it come to this? Has it come to this, that all that matters is the Bank of England and the BOJ on Thursday, the Sintra speech, which we'll be bringing you live on CNBC this morning from Mr Draghi out of Portugal as well, and, of course, the small matter of the Federal Reserve tomorrow and today, of course, but tomorrow being the main event as well. Is it basically about the destiny of markets now that we look at the, what the central banks will or won't do? I wouldn't mind, I mean, I'm just sticking that question out there, but I wouldn't mind if the rates were seen as disproportionately high. But when you look at global interest rates, negative rates in Japan, soon to be negative rates possibly in Europe as well, not particularly high historic rates in the United States, uh, and everybody is pinning their hopes on this, I mean, it's not as if, and just one point for you before I move into the walls, it's not as if we didn't buy $806 billion of buybacks with the current level of financing out of the United States last year, uh, let alone if rates were to go lower. The octane wanted by these markets is insatiable, but is it warranted? Is it warranted? And therein lies the question. Let's have a look at these markets. Yesterday, real estate was the best performing sector in the United States. Materials were the worst performing sectors. There was about a spread of about 1.8, 1.9% between the best performing and the worst performing sectors. Uh, it was pretty even Stevens on the sectors gaining and losing yesterday. But the Nasdaq uh, managed a small outperformance, as you can see there, 0.6 of a percent higher. Would you like to take a look at the dollar crosses? And here's my next question for you, because if the US starts a cutting cycle, or the Europeans start as well, or let's say they all start a cutting cycle or doing whatever they can with Teltros and QE as well thrown into boot as well, it doesn't really necessarily do much net-net then to your currency, does it? So the currency edge to which you're not supposed to admit is part of the issue. But let's face it, many people have used domestic policy uh, for uh, getting their currency down over the years as a trade tool. And of course, we're looking at Big Seven uh, on the Chinese-US currency pair as well. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if the Europeans want to get the euro down, they're going to find it very difficult if the US is in a cutting cycle as well. So have a look at what the euro does against the dollar uh, over the next 
couple of days as well. 112.32 is where it's currently trading. By the way, I should mention cable. It's very important to mention cable at the moment. 125.34. I've been quite repetitive, but I think the point's been right. Uh, 127 to 133 has been your Brexit mean range pretty much as well. We're breaking the bottom end of that at the moment as Boris Johnson is the front runner and could potentially take us into a no Brexit scenario later in the autumn if he were to become prime minister. There's a whole series of ifs there, but just keep an eye on Sterling. OK, shall we move on? Let's have a look at the oil price. A weakish session again. It was um, down again. And what is very interesting, of course, geopolitical tensions, as typified by my good friend Mr Cutmore in the headlines, about 1,000 extra US troops to the Middle East as well, uh, only providing a certain amount of support for the price. It's the demand side of the equation that everybody should be focusing on as much as the supply side. It looks like OPEC plus, at least, will have an early July meeting as well, and that's been another source of contention. But 9.3% lower over the last three months. Again, look at 60 on Brent as well. Is it going to be challenged in the next 24 hours? Asian markets were mixed last time I looked as well. Hang Sang for the second day. You recall yesterday we saw uh, a more sprightly performance. Today is up 200 points. The Shanghai Composite on mainland China uh, trading around the flat line, but you've got the Nikkei down seven tenths of 1%. Would you like to look at the opening calls? I think you do at this point of the day, don't you? Here we are, 73.66 on the FTSE. Uh, FTSE MIB over in Italy called down 41 points. Right, shall we have a look at the main story today? The Federal Reserve is expected to keep interest rates on hold at this week's monetary policy meeting. Uh, but the probability of a rate cut later this year remains high. Now, I've seen all kinds of numbers and dates put out there, but let's just go through one or two of them for you. Analysts from Bank of America, JP Morgan and BMO, are forecasting a cut in September. JP Morgan and BMO expecting another move in addition in December. Goldman Sachs, as you would have heard last week, I think it was Jan Hatzius, wasn't it? Uh, and City don't agree with their base case for no action in 2019. So we have many things we can discuss, Jeffrey, and, and, and yet another central bank chat. But I have a couple of questions for you. Yes. If they're all doing it, do they get the desired bang for their buck in terms yes. of what they want from their currencies? Are the markets going to react in a fashion that is calm and perhaps even rallying on the back of this, given the fact there'll be even more cheap money available? Yes. Or will markets one of these days look through and say, actually, we're worried about the medicine. It's doing more harm than, uh, than good. Uh, and actually, is it a sign that things are really bad at a government level? Because let's face it, the reason why yes. Mr Draghi may have to act again and others may have to act again is because of the inaction of politicians. All fantastic questions, and uh, obviously we're not going to get the answers until we get through this oh, week and find out. Well, I've got some more thoughts just to throw on top, but but the largely circling around the points that you've made at this stage. I mean, our guest host this morning asks a wonderful question in his notes, and the question is: um, Is the market overestimating the Powell put? And that fundamentally is what we're looking at here. And then I was just having a dig around, you know, as you do, and you know, looking for fodder to talk about. Uh, this point uh, when we have our chat about the markets and uh, this headline just seized me and I honed in on it and it said investors dump double B names as rates spike higher and I thought god that's interesting mm. wow really is that what's happening and then I looked at the timeline on it May 2013 and it's not as though we haven't seen this story before and bought the T-shirt and gone on the global tour. We've been at this place before, but the headlines don't look anything like this 
in 2019. Let me read you a headline from a, a recent uh, Financial Times piece. Investors drawn to junk bonds in the hopes of a Fed rate cut, which circles back to our initial comment. Is the market overestimating the Powell put? Because mm. the market action that we're seeing has pretty much concluded that the Fed will take preemptive measures to protect investors, both in the high yield debt market and in the equity market. Do you make, again, that's just a big love in today, isn't it? I like it when we're fighting, to be honest. But anyway, let's just try this one more time. Um, so is this now from the Federal Reserve about the markets or is it about the economy? And are the two exactly the same thing? I don't think they are exactly the same thing. I'll just chuck that out there. That's what I think as well. And I wonder if this is about satiating markets rather than satiating concerns about the economy. Because let's be honest about it, and this has come from the administration as well, because they're trying to say, Mr Powell, cut OK, you need to cut, but at the same time, the economy is looking great. It's never been better than under a Trump presidency. Mm. And there are many reasons to say, yes, Mr Trump, you're, actually, you're right, things are looking quite good. We have a stunningly low level of unemployment. We have decent wage growth in the AHE, which had a three-handle on it as mm. well. Uh, the economy is growing at a clip, which is, OK, not as high as they would like it, but certainly better than we're seeing in Japan uh, and indeed in Europe as well. So outpacing other economies at a time when ch China is slowing down, Japan and Europe are underwhelming as well. So the fact of the matter is, the economy is ambiguous. It's not doing badly. It's doing many, pretty well for many people as well. And yet the market's asking for more. And as you know, there is a healthy debate among economists as to what the central banks are engaged in now. Is it largely about supporting market participants, as you say, or is it about um, helping stimulate activity in the underlying economy? And many economists now beginning to argue, actually, the central banks are not helping with that underlying pro uh, uh, process because wh when money has no price, um, entrepreneurs are very thin on the ground. And, and do you remember when, and I want to talk about double whammy, do you remember when you used to watch the excellent Adam West in Batman in the yes. 70s? And not like these modern versions, which are all yes. grisly. Uh, you used to get Kapow, Kapow. Uh, and Bam, do you remember? Yes. And it was almost yes. kind of Roy Lichtenstein-like, wasn't Indeed. it, as well? And you used yeah. to get these great graphics little, come up. Kapow, Pow. I mean, you and I are, are uh, men in tights, you know, we, we do our own kind of Adam men West version. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Robin Hood movie, isn't it? It is a parody, yes. But uh, my, my point is here, very yeah. briefly, I was trying to make a point, uh, is that a double whammy, is it needed? I.e., when we had the fiscal intervention uh, and support from central banks uh, from Trump and that previously, was it necessary? Whereas now I'm thinking, if we get a trade war resolution, mm. is there any need for rate cuts? Uh, it's a very good thought, and we have lots of guests to talk about it. We're also going to focus, of course, on uh, some of the other central banks that are getting in on the action this week. The uh, ECB has flagged it will postpone any rate hikes until at least the middle of next year. The Eurozone has been hampered by low inflation in recent years, forcing the central bank to launch a fresh round of Teltros in a bid to boost lending across the block. Aneta is at the ECB Forum on central banking in Sintra. And we are anticipating a, a keynote address from Mario Draghi this morning. Um, what's he going to say, do we think, Aneta? 
Well, he will actually today look back at the achievements of the uh, EMU, the European Monetary Union, and that's the main topic today. Tomorrow will be dedicated to the challenges ahead for the European Union uh, and the European Monetary Union, I should say. So it's like a two-day split between, where, yeah, as I said, where are we now and what has happened and what will happen. But clearly, Mario Draghi will also use the opportunity to... Um, probably um, yeah, sort of stress that central banks, especially the ECB, has a lot of ammunition left because recently, also looking at what the markets are doing, it seems that the markets don't really believe that the ECB is able to actually boost inflation back to target to really do something about the economy um, as market-based uh, inflation expectations are close to record lows, especially the five-year, five-year forward. So I guess this will be a big topic for Maya Draghi. I yesterday caught up with Jean-Claude Trichet, uh, clearly um, the former head of the ECB, um, and asked him what he thinks about how powerful central banks will be in the future. Take a listen. The United States is in advance in the cycle. They are probably in advance of three years, three years, 3.5 years. So they are in a phase where they have to know what is normalization from the point where they were. Unfortunately, I have to say, in Europe, we are late in the cycle. And the idea of uh, now we, have, we are getting out of the previous very difficult period of time where we have to use a lot of non-conventional tools, which is the case in the US, is less the case uh, in Europe, unfortunately. So it seems to me that it is less urgent for the European to reflect on the calm and organized way to go back to the new normal, if I may. Uh, of course, they reflect on that and what we will do here uh, it will certainly help reflecting more. But it seems to me that the right question is the question you ask your, yourself. Uh, what, what are your tools at the present moment if you have to cope with a difficulty which will, will require continuation of this uh, very, very uh, uh, non-conventional measures that you take, took uh, in the crisis and since the crisis? But you don't think that we get, uh, or that the ECB is going to uh, reconsider their inflation targets? No, 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 no. I, I, I mean, it's not for me to say that. It is uh, up to the governing council. But I, I would be very surprised if uh, the definition of price stability, namely less than two, but close to two, would be put into question, uh, or if the prime mandate of uh, price stability was put into question. Uh, a lot of uh, additions were, uh, were uh, added to, to uh, the uh, primary mandate. And the treaty says, uh, if you are supplying, delivering on your primary mandate, then you have to help all the other uh, goals of the, uh, of the European. But, and, and that has been done, uh, I think, very well by the ECB and nobody is challenging that, it seems to me. So, uh, again, we are in a situation where uh, the pillar of stability in, in Europe is very, very much the uh, central bank. It would be a mistake, in my opinion, to give the impression that that pillar is uh, uh, about to collapse. Yeah. And uh, uh, that doesn't mean that the tools themselves 
should not be improved permanently, and it is what uh, it seems to me the ECB is doing. So, but there are others who are clearly a, a lot more critical about uh, what the ECB can really do going forward, looking at what they have bought already when it comes to QE and the capital key. There are many restrictions going forward to actually boost QE or to restart it again uh, and to have it at a meaningful size. At the same time, interest rates are at zero. They could lower it into negative territory, but that's a complicated thing, would burden the banks even further. So you see, even though they are stressing it, there's, as I said, also uh, many critical questions of how much they can really do. On that matter, I also spoke to the former chief economist of the IMF, Olivier Blanchard, who also gave the dinner speech yesterday. And uh, yeah, take a listen of what he thinks the ECB can do going forward. I'm a bit more skeptical. I think they can do a lot in the sense that they can buy assets in large quantities. The question is, what does it do to the interest rates? Probably not a whole lot. And then what do the interest rates do the economy itself? Uh, and that, again, may be limited. So I'm sure they'll do whatever they can, whether it has major effects, whether they really have room, I'm more doubtful. If you look at the markets and the inflation expectation, it's actually troubling that it, they, the market doesn't seem to react to announcements from the ECB that they do want to do whatever it kind of takes to get inflation back to target, right? Well, I'm nearly sure that the ECB cannot, by itself at this point, uh, fight a, a recession, that uh, it will need help. It's fairly obvious. And so I think the markets discount a bit what the ECB is saying, yes. So in other words, the ECB or the central banks globally, they don't have that much ammunition left as they like to pretend? Well, they have a lot of ammunition. The question is how, you know, how, how much it kills. Uh, because they can really buy assets in very large quantities, but it may at this stage have relatively little effect on the rates, which is what matters in the end. So Olivier Blanchard and also others are arguing, unless... Uh, politicians are actually waking up and do a bit more spending on the fiscal side of things. We can't really um, fight the, uh, the, the uh, looming downturn of the economy in the United States, but also in the Eurozone and elsewhere. So um, this time it's super urgent that the political side of things are actually doing their job as well and really do fiscal spending. Whether this is going to happen pretty soon actually most likely depends on how much worse the data is going to get. At 8.30 our time, I'm going to speak to Gertrude Tumpel-Gugerel, who also was a former board member of the ECB, about her take on where we stand when it comes to central banking and what needs to be done to make the European Monetary Union uh, a more stable uh, currency union as it is now. Now, back to you with that. Annette, thank you very much indeed. And I have to say, we're loving the evocative background. It is pure Agatha Christie at this hour <laughs> with all that mist around it you. Is. My My <laughs> advice would be stay away from anybody called Professor Plum in the library <laughs> carrying a piece of lead pipe. That's just not a good place to go. And Thank I, you. I'm, I'm sorry for, the, for those who are just listening on the podcast here because they can't see the pictures because the pictures are wonderful, aren't they? Yeah, it's very misty, yeah. You, uh, you're mixing Aneta, your Cluedo with your, you. uh, your Cluedo with your Christie.
My Cluedo with my Christie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they're from the same vein, though, aren't they? they are pretty from much. the same vein, yeah, especially Terrific. in the Cutmore household. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, ECB president, what do you do on those rainy you holidays? You are a bit of a Peter Wales? Houston off yourself, aren't you? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think I'm a little bit taller than he was. Would you ECB president Mario Draghi will address delegates in Sintra at 10 CET. We'll have those comments live on CNBC. He was quite a linguist as well, I think, Peter Houston. He off, was he? Russian born, I think. I have a feeling. All over the place. Yeah, yeah. amazing man. Amazing man. Amazing man. He was the great Poirot, is what we're saying. Well, what, what's happened to all those characters? Well, I think they died, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, but, but where, where are the, uh, the, the great raconteurs of uh, our era? Oh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Um, Italy's populist government has proposed <laughs> launching a parallel currency as it bids to pay off its debts. But analysts have told CNBC it could lead to a higher public debt in Rome. For more, head online to cnbc.com. Well, uh, coming up next, stay tuned for day two of our coverage from Can Lions. Plenty more coming up on Squawk Box, including our conversation from Can Lions, yeah. as we talk about yeah. how computers are taking the guesswork out of creative campaigns. Here's a read for you. Snap's international vice president has told CNBC that augmented reality can help advertisers create magic. Karen has been doing that and many other glamorous interviews at Can Lions. Karen, nice of you to come in. Were the parties good last night? <laughs> They were fantastic, Steve. You missed out on some very big nights here right on this famous strip behind me. But there's serious business to be had as well. I want to talk about content creators because there's a lot of them from the big advertising agencies, you know, the best of the best hired by these agencies to produce magic, uh, the word that you just used. But what about if the content creators of the future are not here? They're not here at Cannes Lines. And what we're talking about is Gen Z, the 4 to 24-year-olds who've become very creative using technology platforms like Snap. And that might just be the next sea change coming for marketers. I asked the international, the vice president of international at Snap, Claire Velotti, about how advertisers are using Snap to target those customers. Take a listen. We don't see ourselves as a social media company. People come to Snap to kind of interact, to communicate with their friends, express themselves. And we talk about ourselves being a camera company because the first thing they're doing is they're being greeted by the camera and invited to express themselves and talk to their friends using the camera. So it's a different way of communicating. Hence, it, we don't, it just doesn't sit in the social media uh, pillar uh, that, as you would class other platforms. Technology companies have had a, a huge opportunity to get in front of customers, though, because of the amount of people that are subscribers on the platforms. How are marketers able to execute and use those numbers to their advantage without it ruining the experience for many of your users? I always say it actually comes back to quite kind of basic formula of really understanding why people are on the platform and how they're using it. And if marketeers understand that insight and then talk to the consumers in the same way as they're using it and as they're talking to their friends, then I think you can absolutely add a really great experience and add value to the people you're trying to talk to. But the really key thing is, is to understand, like in our case, you know, it's very much mobile video and understanding the pace of, of video on mobile, how it's different to TV. And it's all of those nuances. When a marketer really understands that, they really get the most value from the platform. 
you know a lot about Gen Z and teenagers, more so than some of the marketers. What's different about them as consumers versus everyone else who's come before, you know, Gen X, uh, the millennials? How are the, the younger generation different for the marketers? I think ultimately, it's even how we call it digital or technology. It's not digital or technology to them. It's just the norm. It's how they It's talk. life. Yeah, the example I always give is that in my day when I was at school, I'd be calling my friends after school on the telephone and speaking for hours on end. They're snapping their friends and they're not thinking of that as different. It's just what they do and what they know. And I think that's the thing that we have to understand. It's not sometimes I think we often think about even just digital or technologies and add on to, to a marketing uh, plan. It actually needs to be in the heart of it. It's part of the DNA of those of that audience. And therefore, if you really want to reach that audience, you have to understand that. Technology like augmented reality is seamless for, for the generation that we're talking about. But for others, it's still a clunky new technology we're all getting to grips with how to use. Do you have any advice for the marketers and advertisers, media companies, how to use augmented reality effectively? I think first of all, I'd say it's not clunky. I think they have to try it and you realise it's actually pretty seamless and pretty amazing when you experience it. So the advice I always say is, first of all, experience it for yourself and then you understand the impact. Um, and I think it goes back to then really understanding what are you trying to use it for? Like, what's the end case? You've really, really got to understand what you're trying to do um, and what, what story you're trying to tell. And then when you, you think about that, that user case and then you layer it on with using augmented reality, then you create magic. Like you really do, and I've seen some of our brands who we've partnered with have done some extraordinary things and been able to communicate and allow their customers to interact in a completely different way than they would ever be able to do in any other format. Kev Velotti there from Snap, talking about how content is changing. And don't forget, these uh, media platforms, technology platforms, are not just serving up ads. They're also taking the data, the insights about how they, those ads connected with customers and putting them back into a machine and giving that to the advertisers. Now, I spoke to one data cruncher about what they're doing with those insights. And effectively, they can come up with words and phrases that should be used in campaigns because they'll have maximum impact. So AI is changing even the creative side of this advertising industry, I spoke to the CMO of Posado about this change. Take a listen. I think data is everywhere, right? And agencies you know, are moving towards you know, data science and AI. I mean, everybody's going in that direction. And, and creativity and data science and AI is a really hot trending topic here at Cannes. But everybody's you know, approaching it in a slightly different way. You know, we just found a way to, to really go deep on the AI and data science and to codify every word in a marketing communication in an ad and to just regenerate that from, from that type of level. The CMO of Posado there. And just think about it, the, the famous phrases you know in advertising slogans and campaigns, Nike, just do it. What if a computer is coming up with those campaigns of the future? Apparently they're connecting, they're sounding more human than what the humans can come up with at this point. So that's a dramatic change for, for many of the advertisers. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.